0: welcome to the heart rate variability podcast in this podcast we discuss the exciting science behind hrv and how you can apply it to your own health and the work that you do just a note this podcast does not replace medical advice and if you're going to apply this to your own life or others please consult with a medical provider thank you and enjoy the show Welcome to the Trauma-Informed Lens Podcast. I am Matt Bennett. I'm here for our last episode in the Wayback Machines. So uh, this has been a a fun series for me, Uh, going back and listening to all these older episodes to where my passion really uh, began for heart rate variability, where it grew for heart rate variability, and a uh, passion... Uh, by the end of this series, as you'll probably notice, uh, turns into a little bit of an obsession, which uh, uh, eventually uh, led me to uh, co-found Optimal HRV and the Optimal HRV app. So uh, this has been a great series for me. Uh, we, we continue our conversation about uh, regulation uh, with this one. So this is a nice episode uh, a little bit of new material, a little bit of an overview of the entire series. So a uh, great way to wrap up and uh, hope you enjoyed this last episode. We will be back with uh, new episodes uh, coming up uh, next week. Take care. Have a great week. Very cool. Well, Kurt, I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to you to kind of uh, walk us through this article a little bit. Again, everybody can find it at our website, but uh, kind of walk it through us and some of the main takeaways.
1: Well, this is a thick one, huh? This is a uh, thick one. I was reading it and, and uh, getting really curious about um, the thoughts that you guys have about this article because there was a lot in there, and some of it was review from what we have read so far. I mean, there was a nice uh, one thing I really like about these articles is you get a lot of repetition of an understanding of how the two divisions of the autonomic nervous system are related to one another, how that impacts heart rate, and how heart rate starts to have an impact on other areas of functioning. So I. And everyone writes about it a little bit differently. So you get to have a little bit of a different perspective and a little bit of a different information about how that system works and operates. So I appreciate that about all of these articles. And this one is uh, no different. And and it goes into some pretty good detail about um, even the differences between Thayer's model and the Porges model and the difference between afferent neurons and efferent neurons, like information that's going up from the heart to the brain and information that's going from the brain down to the... To the heart. I mean both of those pathways are activated and even one of the points from this article is that there are many more neurons and neuronal activity going from the heart to the brain than from the brain to the heart. So we're getting a lot of information from our bodies that's going to our brain. So some really great kind of reviews of, of uh, the the basic mechanism and basic structures that are that are going on within our bodies. I think one of the things that was uh, certainly, an interesting aspect of this article is the idea that um, the, the, of course, this was done at the HeartMath Institute, which is a, a research um, um, facility, and, and they do a lot of biofeedback there, and a lot of giving you information about what's happening to your body and in your body, and then that information can sometimes help to facilitate change. Yeah. And so they had actually used the information about heart rate variability and some of the detailed information about heart rate variability patterns that are associated with positive emotional states and negative emotional states and use that to develop an an, an intervention. And that intervention is a biofeedback intervention where they had had people, in a nutshell, I'm going to kind of destroy the the procedure a little bit, but um, you're getting information about your physiological state while you're mentally – creating a, a focused task and, and working to induce some positive emotion and finding that that can alter um, some of your physiology and your physiology can then impact um, how you think and your perceptual experiences. So some really interesting, I think, intervention ideas come out of here. And I think a lot of our, uh, our readers could pretty easily access a lot of that stuff. Uh, another key point out of this article that I thought was quite interesting, and there, there's quite a bit more um, quite a bit more writing about this topic, which is correlating uh, reported emotional states to a specific heart rate variability pattern, to a specific pattern of our physiology. And I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, and, and they're finding some pretty good concordance rates between a specific pattern of heart rate variability, um, specifically. Um, mccrady was talking a lot about a sine wave like pattern which is very a very regulated pattern being associated with states of calm and states of coherence or a state of having multiple systems be in alignment and in regulation with one another that's his idea of coherence so there's some pretty interesting information that has been published using uh, a lot of wearable technology um, and that's getting able to generate some heart rate variability patterns and then asking people, what did you feel while you were in this state? And there's a lot of alignment between what people report in emotional states that matches up with what our physiology is telling us. So it it gives us a little more, I think, a more nuanced information about the idea that information that's gathered from our sensory system gets essentially put together in our spinal cord and goes up to our brain stem and that that starts to impact how our brain functions uh, before it ever gets to our cortex and our cortex is then trying to put a story to what's going on at lower areas of our brain and that that our physiology then changes how we perceive the external environment and our internal environment so we start to have different experiences based on what our how our physiology changes some some great information I think some ideas about that
0: could i could I ask you I'd love to get your thought on that that particular point and then i'll I'll let you move on but but one of the things that kinda of, kind of drew me back to and uh kind of you know triggered memories of grad school for me was the whole kind of uh i don't controversy not the right word but debate i think whether the the relationships between thoughts and feelings and whether feelings cause thoughts or thoughts cause feelings and this kind of seemed to uh, to speak to that a, a little bit, I'm not sure if it, it cleared up the conclusion any, but, but that's one of the pieces that, that I thought, it, it seemed to be asking some of the same questions that we were asking as cognitive behavioral therapy started to rise in prominence. Um, and again, it's using different language, but it seems in some ways they're looking for, for similar answers. Did, did Does that make any sense? Uh Thinking that way about some of the conclusions here,
1: it's almost the chicken or the egg question. Yeah. Right. Reaching, right. I mean, I think if, if reading the article, what I take away from the article is it's neither a chick, the chicken or the egg. Like they can either one can happen that way. They're just interrelated to one another, and they're related to our physiology and our biology, uh, which I think is an important point that and goes goes back to my training in radical behaviorism. That one of the things that came out of that theoretical model was never that thoughts and feelings don't matter or don't impact behavior, but that they are phenomena in and of themselves that require explanation. And so that's one of the things that leads me into getting really interested in this topic is it starts to give us some, some mechanisms to help to understand the fluctuations that we can often experience as human beings in our emotional states and in how we perceive those things and that they have an impact on how we perceive the external environment which in turn has a big impact on our our behavior. So I like that topic a lot. I think it's a really fascinating one, and I love the ideas of getting some better understanding of the mechanisms that underlie those phenomena. Anything you'd add to that, Jerry? You always have some unique perspectives.
2: that's a lot, lot, right, (laughs) to kind of summarize. You know, I I think um, from a developmental perspective, um, this concept of being um, really biologically regulated or dysregulated, um, while while the brain is in a rapid state of growth early in life, and how that impacts this discussion we're having, in that when that when that lower part of the brain is receiving um, uh coherent information from the body and is is able to in some ways be regulated by the relational experiences that are going on between the caregiver and themselves it helps to organize those lower parts of the brain so that the higher parts of the brain can begin to become organized because that information is not only used for uh, sensing and organizing, but it's also used as signals of how the brain's gonna prioritize um, the development of higher, whatever, you know, whether I need to live in a highly stressed environment that things can happen rapidly, or whether I live in in an environment where I could prioritize reflection and be able to kind of think about the past and my future kind of look, so, you know, we have to understand that these biological signals are being associated not only with what's happening in the moment, but what happened in the past and what we imagine can happen in the future, mm-hmm. Um, to kind of looking at that. And so, you know, there's very, it's a very different for somebody who has a dysregulated state who has had a history, just like I said, for these kids who grew up in a nice organized home, um, for them not to have a job, for them not to do it, they, they don't feel a sense of um, distress over them. But if you're living on the street and you couldn't find something to eat and you couldn't find food, it's a very different experience. So I think that um, when we don't understand these types of biomarkers, in a developmental perspective and within the individual history of the individual we're working with we miss something um and that sometimes when we look at large populations of taking things out of there it's important for us to take that information and kind of look back and use it to kind of guide us in interacting with an individual but the individual is gonna put meaning to these experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the important piece in terms of, you know, your thought does a feeling drive uh, a, a behavior? Well, probably in a very primitive animal, the answer to that would be yes, right? But as we move up and we're much, we, we're able not only to respond to what's happening in the moment but our simulation of what we want to happen and our our memory of what did happen, it colors how we interpret that experience. So, I think those simple answers that might be um, that might be in certain um, lower species answered in one way would look very different in a complex organism as we are, and that we're interrelated as we've kind of see our heart rate variability has a lot to do with the social environment that we're in um, and the context that we're in. So I think going back to what I said last week, this is really complex stuff. And when you look at one component, it makes sense from that perspective, but we're integrating it into um, a human being whose brain and physiology is very unique to them based on their life experience.
1: Makes you think about the uh, the concept of we know a lot and there's a lot that we don't know still. <laughs> it, it, this is there's we have a we're a really adaptable organism, and and that is means that we have to have a lot of complexity and and that developing that kind of flexibility requires really complex systems to be able to respond to an environment and and be able to function in even two environments you were just talking about Jerry. Like, human beings can function effectively in an environment where there's constant danger around. And we can also function in an environment where, uh, being reflective and pausing and thinking in the future is important for survival as well. To be able to have that much flexibility requires a really complicated system. And it's pretty amazing that we're, that we are designed that way and that we've evolved that way to be able to function in both of those kinds of environments that not many, species
2: can do that. Right, right. I th- I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think what the takeaway is, is how important it is for us as providers to be in a um, regulated, coherent state that we could be open and curious to the person's experience that we're interacting with, hmm. right? And that it's within that open and curious stance that we have the highest possibility and probability of creating a space where that individual can, in some ways, come in to um, coherence with us, right? That we can, in some ways, help them get into a space where they can maybe reflect and they maybe can be able to do it, but a lot has to do with what we bring to that um, interaction. Um, to increase the probabilities and oftentimes when we get dysregulated, we tend to blame our clients for that right and I, I think this a lot of the literature we're reading is about what can we do and Matt going back to looking at his own biomarkers what can we do to bring our best self to these interactions to give the highest probability for success for that other person to experience something different mm-hmm
1: And not only can we impact another person's perception of us in that kind of situation, but that we can also impact their physiology by doing that. It just kind of expands all the different points of contact and kind of points of
2: interest. Exactly. So, you know, Matt said, uh, did we know that before? You know, is this stuff, is this research just telling us stuff we knew before? And the answer is is yes, but we're knowing at a deeper level. And if you think back to your series that you're watching mm-hmm. is that it isn't that these paradigms that something new got created in the universe, it was a way of looking at them that shifted that allowed for new questions and then new new in, innovative answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. So I think adding these this perspective it's not necessarily going to say it's going to give you uh, a n- new way of thinking. It's just going to add on and make it more, in some ways, um, some ways more um, comprehensive. Yeah, it doesn't
1: replace what you what right. you already know. Right. It adds to it.
2: Well,
0: and the other thing I think, and I think this article goes into great detail about it too. There's a, there's also it, with that additional knowledge there there's the opportunity at least and, and again I, uh, technology even if you look at HeartMath, math who wrote this article their their whole measurement system's a big thing you kind of put on your earlobe and not not something you're going to run with or anything like that by any stretch but you, you know you also I, I think it opens up different bringing in and I, I think the three of us have been big advocates for this uh you know the, as soon as i met an occupational therapist my whole perception of uh what I need to do for a lot of my uh, clients change dramatically. But that it also brings in, I think opens up different interventions as well, which I think is a really exciting uh, thing about this is it might be stretching um, with some deep breathing. You know, we were starting, you know, I, I'm also uh, reading a lot on Tai Chi and qigong, and it's like, boy, we're, we're I'm reading this qigong book is like, the, that's what we're talking about in some ways. This 4,000 year ago literature is talking about controlling breath while doing a lot of the same movements that um, you see a lot of these folks on this cutting edge of heart rate variability. Uh, Some of the stretches that that they suggest you do is right in line with this kind of ancient knowledge. I think, again, the the cool thing about this is we can eventually get the state that the individual's in and then match the intervention in a different way that Mm -hmm might add a little bit more data than just a subjective report that somebody might have from, you know, kind of their baseline. So that's the other exciting thing about this is I think uh, not only is the knowledge deepening, but we're bringing in other fields together um, around uh, potential solutions to help people regulate and and hopefully be a part of their healing process as
2: well. You know, I um... – when you were talking, it reminded me a, a couple of episodes maybe ago. Um, I talked about when I was at the residential treatment center and and started to bring in um, these alternative strategies for the for the for the youth um, and actually for the staff to engage in for art, for yoga, for movement, for music, for um, recreational kinds of process. And what we found was. It's not just that these activities were good for the um, physical and psychological well-being, but it it created the condition that allowed them then to engage in a social interaction and benefit from that, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, what we read about some of the heart rate variability earlier about you can have a lot of people and resources around you but not being open and able to access them. So when we add these other components, it doesn't necessarily take away the. We're social creatures. We we need in some ways to heal and recover within the context of social relationships. But because of the um, because of the the stress, the distress, and the traumatic memories that we've experienced, it interferes with us being able to benefit from that. And so some of these alternative strategies create the kind of state that an individual needs to be able to, in some ways, benefit from being um, part of the group that your dog became part of the group with, right? Right. Is that that allows you then to have different experiences and have um, healthy interactions with others because you're in a space for that. So. I think you know what we're learning is not only what the what treatments are good for certain types of disorders, but also what experiences do you need to be exposed to with repetitions to make to make use of those um, mm-hmm. therapeutic interventions. And
1: I love Matt's point about that. This kind of information, I mean, one of the real promising aspects of biomarkers is being able to individualize those things. In an incredibly meaningful way, as you're describing um, and setting up an environment where somebody can become a part of a social group means that safety has been established and otherwise you wouldn't be a part of that social group. That's one of the reasons why we don't become a part of them, but safety is perceived. So, being able to be able to tailor an environment that is safe to an individual who may have a different perception of safety than what I may have as an intervention agent is really important information to get. That be that you know, yeah. like saying we're going to play kickball. Why don't you think that's safe? That's perfectly safe, but it may not be to someone who has experienced a different experience than yeah. I have. I can get their physiology can help me to make that decision better and determine what is a safe environment for that person.
2: And, and safety is different than compliance, mm-hmm. right? It's lots of our systems want the people who are coming into them to be compliant yeah, yeah. Um, as an indication. And that compliance is oftentimes a sense of loss of power and control and um, a, a defensive strategy. As opposed to feeling safe and engaging.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what you know, one I, one measure of being safe could be challenging authority, right? <laughs> right? It, the, the exploration. I was it
2: my house? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's you challenging your wife? Is right. that how that goes? That's how
1: you. That's how you reframe that one. We raise very verbal they, children. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they must be feeling really safe. <laughs> So so I, so I have one one of the questions this is brought up I, I think as a trainer is one of the things I, I that that I do um, again because you know some way the technology is there and this is new stuff is that I, I think we focus on a lot of times whether I'm training on MI or just talking about trauma informed best practices you know we we really sort of default to the first piece of being. Their the relationship you know we try to throw mindfulness in there and those things as well, but you know from all this research, one of my big takeaways is you 're not quite sure what the the state uh, of the individual in the waiting room before you meet with them is or, or whatever environment you 're working in, and so we, we put this really emphasis, which I, I think is is good in, in so many ways on trust, safety. Empathy, active listening skills, all, all these things uh, that are historically the foundation of most interventions. And yet, we, on, what this research is telling us is that so, uh, I, I don't know if I, I, and this is kind of my question, is uh, do we think 10% of folks coming into maybe, let's say, for, for trauma treatment aren't ready to verbally engage and socially engage? But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about, okay how until the technology gets just a little bit better and we, we can integrate this in in some meaningful way, like where we're kind of talking, there's a, there's a group of people who aren't ready to really socially engage. But but what, how should people think about that? Because our skill sets evolved engaging people socially more so than doing regulatory exercises or stretching or other things. And so I just kind of wonder for our listeners is, should our default be, hey, that the vast majority of people we're probably working with are ready to socially engage and get to a level of work if you think about case management or medical providers or or should we assume the majority aren't ready for that social engagement? We should definitely structure in different exercises. Could we trust an individual self-report? Um, because they may say, yeah, I'm ready to go. and they're not really ready to go. I don't know. I, so it's I'm kind of like sitting here. Is uh, do we need to shuffle the deck in some way about our approaches? So, uh, hey, Matt,
2: what what thoughts do? Those are the questions that are coming up for you. Do you have any? Do you, what's your thoughts on that?
0: You know, my, my I always think about you know the 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 regulate relate piece of it. So my thought is, and this was before this series was to do a little bit of breathing exercises. To, to help you know, regulate, get, get both the helper and the client, patient, student present before you engage socially. Um, I think the, the question I have is without a, a reading, so to speak, um, I think a lot of people might need a lot more than a minute of deep breathing kind of short mindfulness practice. And they may need that to be the intervention in some ways before the relational engagement can really be effective. And if you look at dropping, of people dropping out of care at rates, I was just at an HIV conference in Vegas, you know, it, it's, you know, we have this high rate that drops out of care. And I'm just kind of wondering if is, is that representing to some extent, I think there's a lot of reasons people drop out of HIV care is that they're not they're not biologically psychologically in a place to really engage yet they need help desperately so you know I, I, it, it makes me go back to regulate relate ration, um, but I'm not sure we're doing enough as across helping professions with uh, the regulate piece. Uh, maybe if we get readings at some point we'll have better data to craft our interventions in real time but You know, I'm just kind of wondering if there's like a 5% group out there where we're sort of missing the boat on or is it 50% Um, and I know that's a hard question because depending on the environment you're in that's going to vary differently but I just kind of wonder how many people in the waiting room are really ready ready to engage socially uh, when we attempt to to do that or kids in the classroom. so it's, it's, been a, it's been a big change, of, not change in my thinking, but a big question that I, I'll probably struggle with for, for a couple of years as I, I dive in this research even more.
1: I think just asking the question is the right direction to go, right? If you're sitting across the table from somebody, asking yourself, is this person ready to socially engage with me <laughs> or not? And what experience do I need to provide to help them to get closer to that is a great intervention. Like the, even thinking that is a very, very good yeah. thing to do. I think some some interesting kind of bearing on that question was the last article we read. In that the the subject, so we read at the article about uh, women who were seeking trauma treatment for PTSD and the challenges that they had uh, developing a working alliance. And those with low heart rate variability had a very difficult time developing a working alliance. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think your your question is the exactly the right one, and probably just asking it is getting you a significant direction towards being able to socially engage with people. Yeah, There's a, um, I mean, we have a case right now that I'm, I'm working on with one of the clinicians who works for me and she's just doing a bang up job of it. Um, and this is a woman with an intellectual disability who experiences a lot of urges to self-harm and some suicidality. And one of the things that we asked her is we we have kind of a de-escalation sequence, right? That's it's a training method. That doesn't mean that it's perfect, right? It's just a training to train people on how to at least think about de-escalating before you do anything else. And one of the characteristics of it is it has a, a kind of a three option uh component to it, that when somebody's becoming escalated and you need to interact with them, um, you can either wait and see what happens next. You can ask them if they need help with something, or you can give them a direction to do something. And so there's three options available to you. And so one of the things we did with this woman who was experiencing some pretty high levels of of suicidal ideation is to say, when you get in that state where you feel that urge and you want to engage with us socially, because she'll do that, she'll call. And we asked, what's helpful for you? When she's regulated, she can answer this. When she's not, she could not answer it. And what she said is what everybody has tried in the past is that they try to help me right then. And that's not helping. That does not help me. What I need you to do is give me a direction. I need you to tell me, no, you can't do that. I need you to say, no, I need you to go do this. And if you do that, I might argue with you, but it will help me in that moment. And so we could tailor what we needed to do in terms of socially engaging with her in a way that was helpful for her. So just coming in with that question, I think, generated that kind of an intervention where and, and the, the, the therapist, it was, it was, I mean, her reaction to it was just great. She's like, I feel like I'm being such a jerk because she's in this psychological pain and this emotional pain. And I'm telling her, no, you're not doing that. No, you're not leaving the house. You need to sit down right there. You need to like, but that's what they had developed as what was really helpful for her in that moment. So Matt, asking your question is is the kind of the pathway to getting those kind of tailored interventions with what somebody needs all around what do you need to socially engage with me and, and what do you need to help feel safe and what will keep you safe?
0: Yeah.
1: Anything you'd add, Jerry?
2: Yeah, I, I think that uh, after working with um, young um, adolescent females, um, oftentimes their emotions are overwhelming to them they're not useful in terms of guiding their behavior they're not useful in giving them information they're just flooding and so um there's a difference you know i think uh um talked about vehement emotions that these overwhelming emotions are not useful states for people to be in and there's a difference between somebody having an emotion Reaction that they're feeling things and they're using it. And so, in a way, what you're saying is this state that she's in, it's not helpful having her just emote um, or talking to her, right? So it's like, tell me what to do, um, which is oftentimes what we, you know, we used to just say is, here's, here's the things you do when you get in these states. Boom, you know, DBT skills training is, here's what you do when you get into these states. Is that talking to them about their emotions only escalates the emotional state that's dysregulating? So right. um, I, I think that having that understanding that if you're just a therapist, that kind of go go you know go go with that. Let's go with that. Um, you might go someplace you don't really want to be, uh, <laughs> right. and and that would be happening. What would happen is when I worked with a group of females, uh, uh, you know, who have a history of abuse one's affect state would drive the other affect and all of a sudden they're off having, um, you know, crying about things that happened and and who did what and what. And really it was about, let's just stop and settle down. Mm -hmm. Once you're all settled, we could talk about what you're feeling and what you're doing, but let's just stop and settle down or let's go take a walk and distract you. Or, you know, what are the coping skills? So I think, you know, that's a really good point is that, there's no intervention that's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. But you do have a set of interventions, uh, protocols for your therapist when they get in that state that helps them say, here's what I could do when I'm dealing with this situation. So that protocol probably is better for the therapist than it was in some ways for the client to kind of looking at that. Piece.
1: Helps to regulate them a little bit.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Really
1: those kind of, kind of, uh regulators or limits essentially on processes uh, both cognitively and physiologically is what we're finding is right those limits even the limits that our parasympathetic puts on our sympathetic is a really good thing right just from just becoming so sympathetically aroused that we like our heart rate goes higher than we can handle and our body just can't go that high and so having a limit on it is actually really helpful
2: right right and you know these states don't you know uh, they they happen simultaneously all the time. We're not in one state; we stay there. I mean, there are some people who are dominant; and they stay in these hyper aroused states. Or they, but most of us are shifting from one state to the other um, throughout the sessions that you have, or throughout an interaction that you have. Um, you know, I I go to a training, and if it's boring, I'm in a very different state. I am if it's engaged you know I'm dissociating and I'm thinking about all the other things I'm supposed to do right to kind of looking at that so there's some health about being able to shift states right and then the extremes of that is when they happen you're so sensitized you have no control over it that you kind of kind of look at that so I think learning about some of this information um, even recognizing yourself when you are engaged and when you're disengaged, Mm -hmm. right? You shifted states Mm -hmm. Um, and that's okay. You know, when you go daydreaming, you've shifted states as opposed to when you're, you know, you're engaged in asking questions. You're obviously in in a more aroused alert state to kind of looking at that. So, you know, being more aware of the state that you're in is gonna help you when you're with your clients to not only be aware of their states, but what state did I get into that is saying something about this interaction about what this client needs. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that, you know, uh, a question I have kind of outstanding and I, I love, obviously I'm not sitting on a, a big grant for research funding at this point in my career, but one of the one of the things that, that this article and really the series has brought up too, especially when you're talking about motivational interviewing and really how we help people change behaviors, um, is heart rate variability in the stages of change because we know somebody you know which is why i'm a big advocate for teaching the action, the clients on mm-hmm. stages of change so you don't have to guess where they're at you can just have a conversation about it but but i, I just kind of wonder is we we know people might be at action stage one day and then this swing back to contemplation or to relapse you know there's there's all these we we see these um in the folks i work with these these really big swings even from a day-to-day sort of basis and I think we all, all all can relate to that if we're trying to make a change in our own life you know a bad night of sleep or you know somebody's trying to eat healthy and that really nice person brings donuts to the office and you have a bad phone call and all of a sudden you're binging out on donuts. you know we, we all kind of fluctuate in there but but I, I guess a, a question I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on this but but I really I would love to uh train people like I, I encourage folks to go through my mi training to 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 work with the clients to understand the stages of change to gain insight to themselves but also how heart rate variability impacts positive versus negative uh kind of momentum along that change journey because it would seem that your your state uh, your, your current stage of change as a flexible dynamic thing is highly dependent on your state. And it would seem like, again, before those change conversations, if somebody's, again, has low heart rate variability, again, might be a cue to do some exercises with that. Um, so, so that was the other thing that I, I think at the end of this journey, um, which is really just the beginning, I think of all of our journeys in some ways, you know, there, there's just that thought about how this would impact uh, how we try to help people make uh, those those difficult behavioral changes as well, and our change conversations and how to craft those too.
1: One of the things I thought, Matt, that bore on a question you've asked a few times as we've talked about a lot of these articles is, is heart rate variability a state or a trait? And we've kind of landed on the answer of both. And I think this, this article gave a little data about that, Yeah, that even there's kind of this concept of the amount of heart rate variability that you have as a more trait measure and that you can still fluctuate in the actual wave pattern of heart rate variability regardless of how much you have to start with Mm -hmm. and so that i thought put some a little bearing on that question that you've asked quite a bit as which one is it like which one is it and it is both like there is both a kind of a resting state or a homeostatic state and kind of a an amount of vagal tone or or of cardiac tone that we have, and then we can kind of also fluctuate within that. And that that mm-hmm. I, I love the ideas of that measure, and the pattern of, of variability, being associated with different distinct emotional states, mm-hmm. and that those can shift as Jerry was talking about. I mean, they're they're seeing differences in that pattern when we analyze, when we look at that wave pattern in the right way. That there's a difference in heart rate variability pattern if you are bored in a training and not paying attention as opposed to mentally focused on the training and on the tap on the topic we see a difference in our biology and our physiology in those two states and i think that's just fascinating
0: well and and another i think question too is and i think this came from jerry at one point so i should probably give him credit for this though though I, i probably don't enough is is one of the things i think we were sitting in one of the trauma group meeting at one point and uh you know, it's like, what's this mom need? Mom was really struggling with her daughter who was in the criminal jail, you know, what what's this mom need? And I, Jerry, it might've been you, somebody in the group though, really. It's like, kind of needs a spa day. <laughs> the mom needs a freaking spa day. And, <laughs> and I'm always like, you know, I, I, I think about like, Kurt, kind of what you're saying with the state and traits. And one of the other thoughts I had is, what if we sent these folks in again, we're in Colorado. So we have re- really easy access Two beautiful places, but what if we kind of put, like gave these people a three-day retreat where they got massage, where they got yoga, and just, I I wonder if giving them an experience of regulation in in the way that honestly, middle-class, upper-class folks have access to, but people in poverty don't, giving them a regulatory experience in an intense way like that might be overwhelming for some, but again, it's just kind of a thought is if you experience heart rate, a good strong heart rate variability, uh, what impact does that have long-term? And if you you help that person also get skills to go back to that place, do we start addressing some of those underlying traits um, that might not, might be, you know, uh, not useful uh, in, in other parts of their life now is that they try to make some changes. So that was another question is like, hey, well, what would a three-day strategic retreat of relaxation and regulation do from somebody who might has not experienced a good amount of regulation or a healthy amount of it for years, if ever?
2: You know, I'm going to have to jump off, but in response to you, it's really important to understand what that means for the individual that you're yeah. giving it to, right? And so some people don't feel like they deserve that. Mm-hmm. And so that might be something you work towards, um, as opposed to just giving them something um, because if it feels incongruent with what they're at, that also could be, you're giving them something that's a resource, but they're not in a space to accept that resource. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, um, again is um, this the, the takeaway I think is there's a lot of literature that talks about the more attuned I am to my own internal state the higher my capacity for empathy mm-hmm. right and so when we're talking about all these measures and being aware um, really. It's about our physiology is not only impacting the person in front we're working with, but it's impacting us. And how do we take time in the session so we have 80% of our attention on our client, but 20% internally watching the states that we're getting in. And I think all of our listeners will become better at providing the kind of um, interventions they can if they become more attuned to their own internal state not necessarily just the state of the uh, people we're were providing services to. So I've got to run my garage door broken. So there's a guy here to fix my garage (laughs) Uh, So I'll see you guys later. Uh, Bye, Jerry.
0: All right, Jerry. Kurt, do you have any kind of, any thoughts on our series?
1: some great questions that we, we, I mean, whether or not we should give people retreats or not is like, you know, take that question aside. Like, should we do that or not? I mean, that's kind of the, Put that question aside, but it, it brings up some great questions about, um, I'll give you an example of when I first started working in in residential treatment, one of the things that people wanted to put a contingency on that kids had to earn was time with their families, mm-hmm. right? And they wanted to use that as a motivator. It was a very effective motivator sometimes. Sometimes it wasn't. I mean, honestly, yeah, right? But when you really start thinking about that, you start thinking i mean it's well-intentioned right they, i mean seriously nobody is doing this because they're trying to screw up a kid's life right nobody was trying that yeah. but when you think about what does somebody need in order to recover or what does somebody need in order to actually function better and, and move more towards psychosocial well-being social coherence physiological coherence what are the experiences that they need is a great question to ask and it's a shift in the question to that away from mm-hmm. What do they deserve yeah and, and I just think that 's the question right? I, I, whether I, what, what we should do or what we shouldn 't do fine right we're just, but oftentimes we're just we 're not asking quite the right question, I think, and so just shifting to that question of what does this person need is a real large you know large leap towards a, a trauma informed approach and and I think a, a real good humanistic kind of approach of. You know, what what, does pe- what do people need in order to move towards better physical, psychological, behavioral, physiological health in, in all these different areas, I, I think is, is the, the right question. Uh,
0: thank you for joining us for this episode. If you're interested in more information about HRV, please visit us at OptimalHRV.com. Also, if you visit optimalhrv.com, you'll be able to sign up for our email list and download our free ebook, Healing with HRV. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.